You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we confess our great need of you, that everything else upon which we would stake our lives is sand. So we ask this morning as we open your word that you'd allow us to continue worshiping you. That we wouldn't stop worshiping when we sit down to read or study, but that this would be a continuation of our worship, giving praise and honor and glory to you, our rock and our redeemer. And that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us, instruct us, and fashion us, equipping us for all that we need, all that you will call us to. Guide our time this morning, that your church might be edified and built up for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, some folks coming around, they'd be happy to to give one to you. Luke 13, starting in verse 22 today. We've been working our way through Luke, following the ministry and teaching of Jesus. We've watched as he's healed men and women of sickness. We've, we've, we've seen as he's freed them from demonic oppression. We've listened as Jesus has called out religious hypocrisy and apathy, and foolishness, and faithless anxiety. We've, we've seen Jesus address all of these things in these last number of chapters, these last number of weeks. Each action that he takes, each word that he says, helping bring into focus a little more of this kingdom of God that he's inaugurating. Jesus said it way at the beginning of his ministry, that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's, it's here. And little by little, we're seeing this kingdom of God as it breaks through, kind of working its way in to the kingdoms of men, taking over. And along the way, Jesus has said some pretty challenging and difficult things. We've read a number of them these last couple of weeks. Jesus has drawn some pretty hard lines in the sand. Some things are a little black and white, that the way of the kingdom of God is not always what the people of God expected it to be. That's where our passage picks up today. Jesus is continuing this journey towards Jerusalem. He's looking at what's in front of him the cross and what it's going to cost. And he's asked a question while he's journeying along, and he has at least one more hard thing to say. So let's read our passage, and we'll jump into our text for, the, for today. Uh, Luke 13, starting in verse 22. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter uh, in verse 35. A little longer text, but we'll get through it all today. I promise you that. Starting in verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to him, 
Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now along the way, Jesus is interrupted. This is not the first time that someone has just... uh, offered a question unsolicited from the crowd. And the question that Jesus has asked is actually a pretty daunting question. If, Jesus, all that you've said to this point, if all you've said about the kingdom is true, if time really is short, if we're supposed to be ready, like you've told us, and if we are truly prone to hypocrisy, which you've said, that we must be aware of our own hearts, And if God is indeed patient with us, but at some point that patience ends and we'll stand before him face to face, if it's true that at some point in time we will all stand before you and some will be found to be with you and some will be found to be against you, verse 23, Lord, if all this is true, well, will those who are saved be few? Essentially, the question is being asked, who's going to be saved? This is, I think, the primary question being asked in this text. And even more so is the question I think Jesus works to answer. Who gets into the kingdom? Who will be saved? And as this passage unfolds, I think Jesus gives a foundational gospel answer. And that's this. That all who enter the kingdom through Jesus are welcomed into the kingdom forever. All who enter the kingdom through Jesus are welcomed into the kingdom forever. So all of you who are taking notes this morning, here's how we're going to break down the text. Three things, three aspects to this kingdom. There's the narrow door of the kingdom, the wide table of the kingdom, and the patient plea of the kingdom. The narrow door, the wide table, and the patient 
plea. First, the narrow door of the kingdom. The question that Jesus has asked, will those who are saved be few? And he offers an interesting response. Jesus' answer is verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. That's his answer. Will it be few? Strive to enter through the narrow door. The door to the kingdom, which Jesus is being asked about, he says is narrow, right? You can picture a narrow door, right? This isn't an airplane hangar. It's a door in a particularly narrow one. Verse 24 continues, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is pretty exclusive language coming from Jesus' mouth. Many will seek to enter into the kingdom. Many will seek salvation in the broadest sense. They'll be interested in it. They'll seek to enter the kingdom, but they will not be able to enter. Some will and some will not. And Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. And that word strive translated for us in our English Bibles, the Greek word from which we get that English word strive, uh, the, the English word that comes underneath that Greek word is actually the word agony or agonize. Essentially, Jesus' answer is saying, this is not to be taken lightly. It's an important answer that I'm giving you. Agonize, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's low-key answering the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus is saying, yes. <laughs> yes, Jesus seems to be saying, so take seriously the need to enter through the way provided for you into the kingdom. And take note, the way is narrow. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of narrow, but let me give you an, an example, an illustration. Outside of Pueblo, Mexico is a city called Cholula. I don't know if anyone's ever been to Cholula. Great little city, right? <laughs> Amy raises her hands. And it's home to the largest pyramid by volume in the world. It's not in Egypt, it's in Mexico. By volume, not height. The pyramids in Giza are taller. But the largest pyramid by volume is here. And it's pretty much covered half underground. Uh, so it's very green all around it. There's lots of, of just lush uh, trees and plants and grasses. And, and the top, the there's a 16th century chapel built right on top, because of course there is, right? And, um, but you can actually go and walk through portions that have been excavated, and they warn you right at the beginning when you get your little ticket that be careful, it's narrow in places. It's small in places. Now, we had some missionary friends who lived there for a number of years, and so we visited a few times, and it's, just, it's not even for those who are slightly nervous about enclosed spaces. Like, there are places where you have to duck down to get through because the, the roof is, or the pathway is kind of carved like this and then straight down. So you have to duck down and your shoulders touch both sides, like both, right? Emily, you're too tall. This, if you're not claustrophobic, you're fine. My wife was pregnant at the time. And so she's like uh, going through some of those. And ner it's nerve wracking. It's tight in there, right? So, so when I think of a narrow doorway, Sorry to pick on you. When I think of a narrow doorway, my mind doesn't just go to the weird undersized door in my basement that goes to the basement bathroom, which is a little weird narrow door that they put in. I don't just think of that. I think of this tiny, very claustrophobic, narrow walkway in a pyramid in Mexico. When I hear narrow path passageway, this is what I think of. So for you, pick your favorite claustrophobic scenario and import that here when, you say, when we think of this term narrow, right? We, don't, we aren't given dimensions, just... That's what you can picture there. Now, this entry into the kingdom, 
It's not the only place Jesus has talked about a doorway or a gate or an entryway in these terms. Keep your finger in Luke 13, and if you want to, you can slide over just a few pages to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, starting in verse 1. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, excuse me, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, well, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is saying, the shepherd comes in through this door, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and the gatekeeper lets him in to care for the sheep and to lead them out into pasture. It's only thieves who try to get in another way, climbing the fence or sneaking around the backside. Jesus is talking here about the relationship between himself and his people, his sheep. Verse 6 of John chapter 10. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. First of all, I love how John just tells us straight up, they did not understand what Jesus was saying. I'm like, I'm not the only one sometimes when I read this. Verse 7, because they did not understand what Jesus was saying to them, so Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Let me just be really clear. If I wasn't clear the first time, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, Jesus says, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, clear as day, says it in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So Jesus is talking about entrance into the kingdom. He's talking about salvation. You want abundant life here and eternal life in the age to come? Do you want the guidance of the Lord himself as your shepherd? Do you want one who will care for you and lead you and provide for you? You want to live as a full participant in the kingdom of God? Jesus says you get all of that when you enter through me. This is the narrow door, the exclusive way into the kingdom. There is no other way into the kingdom of God. Jesus is making an exclusive truth claim here, that there is one way to God, and it's through Him. In John 14, just a few chapters later, we read possibly the clearest and most well-known exclusive claim of Jesus. John 14, verse 6, where Jesus just flat out says, me, it's me, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Back to Luke 13, verse 24. You want in? Strive to enter through the narrow door. It's narrow, but it's open. Matthew's gospel has a parallel passage to this passage we're reading today in Luke 13. Matthew chapter 7 is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. Sound familiar? For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are 
few. So the first part of this concept of a narrow door is that it's narrow. The second part of this concept of narrow door is that it's a door, metaphorically. And what do doors do? Well, they open and close. Look at verse 25. Luke, excuse me, Luke 13, verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. At some point, the door gets shut, right? I know people all over North Dakota don't lock their doors, but I'm pretty sure you close them at night, right? But waiting until the last minute, after the door has been shut, some will come knocking and say, okay, I want to come in now. And the master is going to say, I don't know who you are. So not only is the entrance narrow, not only will few find it, but even more troubling, at some point the door gets shut, and once it's shut, it's shut. It's closed for the night. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 7 in that parallel passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, after the door is shut, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? We just heard something similar in Luke 13. Here in Matthew 7, in our passage in Luke 13, Jesus is not saying, I don't know who you are, when he says, I don't know where you came from, as if he isn't familiar with them. But here's what he, I think he is saying. He's saying, you don't belong to me. You're not one of my guests. You didn't want to become and be part of this kingdom, so you're not. Look at, again at our text, Luke 13, verse 26. Then you'll begin to say, Jesus is telling them, this is the excuse that you're probably going to use. We ate and drank in your presence, Jesus, and you taught in our streets. You're right here. We have proximity to you, Jesus. Or in the Matthew 7 passage, we did ministry in your name, Jesus. People were healed because of the work we did in your name. And Jesus says, I, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And he sends them away. That departing isn't just a, they slink off. They are sent away. Verse 28, and in that place where they are sent, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In what place? In that place where the workers of evil go as they are sent away, cast away from the presence of the Lord. This is a reference to hell and judgment. And here, Jesus offers two descriptors of those who are cast away. He says there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Now, now weeping is, is kind of self-explanatory. Right? We can get a picture of weeping, overwhelming sorrow and grief and sobbing uncontrollably, right? We can understand weeping, but the gnashing of teeth? You ever seen a little kid get angry and they grit their teeth when they slug their sibling or something? Maybe you do that. Maybe it's not just the kids. Right? There's a gritting of teeth when you're frustrated. The picture with the gnashing of teeth is almost 
in overwhelming and uncontrollable rage, not just gritting teeth, gnashing them. That those who end up outside of the kingdom, who will reside in judgment and in hell, are shaking their fists at God. That's the picture. And with Jesus' audience here being primarily Jewish, they see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, right? The fathers of the nation of Israel. They're the embodiment of all the covenant promises of God. We'll get to that here in a second. They and all the prophets whom the people rejected. They will all be eating and drinking in the kingdom, celebrating together in the kingdom. It's a fulfillment of look at what God has done to fulfill all his promises. And you're going to be on the outside looking in. And just as you hated the prophets when they came to you the first time, you're going to hate them and hate all that they've stood for. Just as you assumed that the covenant promises of God were yours, even though you didn't actually keep God's covenant, you will continue to despise the prophets and you will disregard God's covenant even while you suffer under God's righteous judgment. That's the snapshot of hell and judgment that we're given here. Now, I just want to pause on this for just one more thing before we move on. For lots of people... The whole concept of, of hell and judgment is a, is a touchy subject, right? We don't like the idea of hell. We're uncomfortable talking about it. And while there are some things in Scripture that remain mysterious, there are some things that are clear. And it's actually Jesus who speaks more about hell than he even does about heaven in the Gospels. Most of what we read and know about hell and judgment comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. And while we don't have time this morning to do a deep dive into the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of judgment this morning, we also can't skirt the issue, which is why we're talking about it. Because if Jesus is making an exclusive claim that there is one way to the kingdom, one way to salvation, the implication is that every other way is non-salvation, right? It's judgment. There's not a third option. And the picture here is that those who hear Jesus' invitation to come to the kingdom through him and are received by him, and that there are those who hear the invitation and decide to try to get in their own way, and they're not getting in. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, references two types of people in the end. I found this really helpful. He says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. I found this remarkably helpful because I think Lewis is right. And this is consistent teaching. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament and completely compatible with a theological understanding and belief in God's sovereign grace that in the end, God will give us exactly what we want so that if we desire Jesus, if there's a desire in you for Jesus, that can only be because grace is at work changing who you are. 
So if we desire Jesus, then it's only God's grace at work in our hearts that have been transformed and our desires are now being changed by the loving kindness and mercy of God. This is the picture that Jesus paints. That those who don't want to come in by the narrow door don't come in because they don't want to come in that way. So Jesus says the door to the kingdom is narrow. But once through the door, once through the door, the kingdom of God is vast and expansive and the table at which God's people reclined with him is wide and welcoming. And that's our second point this morning. The door to the kingdom is narrow, but the table in the kingdom is wide. This point is short, but I think it's important. I don't want to miss it. Jesus references Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, all these covenant promises of God. And these people represent that. Essentially saying all the promises of life and abundance and blessing that you'll be my people and I will be your God, that you'll have a place to dwell and live with me forever, are embodied here as a fulfillment of God's promises. All that will come to fruition in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, I'm inaugurating all of that. Verse 29, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. This is not just a a regular average meal. Recline at table is a celebration. It's a picture, a foreshadowing of the, the marriage feast of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation. At the end of all time, when all of God's enemies are put away and done with and His people sit with Him and live with Him, It's the place where women and men from every tribe and tongue and language and people will be gathered around the throne and will worship God forever in glory. So that even though the entrance into the kingdom is narrow, the invitation is broad and is open to all who have ears to hear and all who respond to the call of repentance and faith. And so part of what makes this so jarring for the people who are listening mostly Jewish audience, is they're still still coming around to the idea that God's people aren't only ethnically Jewish. Jesus said it in John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not yet part of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd, right? One Jesus, one shepherd, one kingdom, one flock, many sheep, big table. Luke 13, verse 30, some some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Some of the ones in the kingdom you don't expect, and they'll be the treasured guests. And some who you think are the best of the best, they'll sit at the kids' table. Now, I don't think there's actually a kids' table in the kingdom. I think it is one big banquet table, but, but, but his bride will dine together with their king. The picture here is this, that there will be a day when believers in Christ Jesus will receive a great and full reward. The master will call all of his people together and will give to every single one an unfading crown of glory. And the cups, their spots at the table will be filled to overflowing forever and ever. And this is open to everyone who enters through the narrow door of Jesus. 
So we must be clear on the narrow and exclusive claims of Jesus as the only way into the kingdom, and we must be clear on the broad invitation and welcome of the gospel to all who would repent and trust in Jesus by faith. And this is the two-sided coin to our message, right? Our gospel message, and this was Jesus' message, which is the third and final point this morning, the patient plea of the kingdom. Look at verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, now we don't know the motives of these Pharisees. Were they sympathetic to Jesus? I mean, he did find some amongst the Pharisees and scribes who were interested in what he had to say. Were they sympathetic? Were they warning him? Were they just mouthpieces of Herod trying to threaten him? Were they just annoyed with Jesus? And they're like, maybe if we use the Herod card, he'll go away. We don't know. We have no idea. We do know how Jesus responds. Verse 32, he says to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Calling Herod a fox was an insult. They don't trust him. He's slimy and dishonorable. Go tell this imposter, Jesus is saying, I'm not afraid of him. I'm going to keep doing this ministry today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Jesus is using metaphorical language here, that he's going to keep working until all that he said is accomplished. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from doing what he set out to do. And then he makes this heartfelt plea, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anytime we see those repeated words in Scripture, it's meant to mark emphasis. Jesus is pleading here. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Every time God sent you a prophet to warn you, you murdered them. You ignored them. You refused to listen. Jesus continues, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I'm a city kid. I don't know a lot about chickens, but even I understand this illustration. Right? Little chicks running around needing care, needing shelter, would be lost and in danger of being snatched up, maybe even by a fox. Jesus says, my arms are open to you, and you were not willing. You didn't want what I was offering. You were fine on your own, but now your house is forsaken. And then Jesus closes. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Luke takes this passage chronologically and puts it here before Jesus has entered Jerusalem where people will lay down palm branches and cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Chronologically, this section probably actually happened later. Matthew has it after he's already entered Jerusalem. So what I think Jesus is saying here is you're not going to see me Like, you're not going to receive me, actually receive me, until you receive me as the prophet that I've been sent as. You won't truly see me if you fail to receive me. And so here Jesus carries out this passionate and purposeful mission and makes this plea with any who will listen. It's me, he says. You're looking for me. So, what do we do with this? Here's some things I think you and I can take away from this passage and its context and apply it to ourselves and our life together as a 
local church. What we believe about the kingdom of God will show itself in the way we talk about the kingdom and in the way we live. What we believe about how the kingdom works will show itself in how we talk about the kingdom and how we live. So a couple questions for us. Is our patient plea the same as Jesus? Does our gospel communicate both a narrow door and a wide table? When we think about sharing the gospel with others, does our message make clear both the exclusive claims of Jesus as the only way into the kingdom, as it says in Acts chapter 4, that salvation is found in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven in which we can be saved? Or because we don't want to offend, do we shy away from language that sounds well so exclusive? Does our plea, our message, does it make clear the warning that rejection of Jesus here is not only about what happens here, but has bearing on the life to come, that hell is real, that judgment is real, not as a scare tactic, but as a sobering spiritual reality. And not only does our plea, is it clear the narrowness of the door, which it should be, but does our gospel also communicate a wide table? So when we talk about the gospel, does grace leak out and spill out everywhere just how amazing it is that if grace truly is grace, people can actually change. That there is not one ounce of earning, one sliver of partiality in the kingdom, but that you and I are invited to sit at the same table as every other redeemed sinner who has been called from death to life. Every color, every language, every socioeconomic background. No matter our past, no matter our history or the record of our lives, that all those who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved and that we will feast together in the house of the Lord with restored hearts and weep no more together. Does our gospel have those that chunk of message. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I really appreciated this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they should perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. I pray our gospel, our message, lacks neither the narrowness of the door nor the bigness of the table. That's the first thing. Second, do we actually believe that Jesus is still at work to finish his course? In one sense, he has accomplished all he came to accomplish by dying on the cross to take our sin, bury it in the grave, and rise again to glorious and eternal life that we might have life. So when he said it is finished, he accomplished what he set out to do. And then when he rose again, he commissioned his church to spread that gospel. Do we believe that what Jesus says in Matthew 16, that he is going to build his church, 
and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Do we believe that, that, that Jesus' words still apply through his disciples? That he will accomplish all of his purposes? That he is saying through his church, you can't stop me. Where's our tendency to just bunker up, right? I mean, the culture has just gone to pot and it seems to be getting worse. So we just tend to hole up and just going to wait it out. Just going to bunker up. We have food, water, ammo. We're good, right? Rather than being proactive because the kingdom of God is not static. It's active. It advances. It expands. So what does it look like to be on the offensive against the works of Satan in the kingdom of darkness? There's a map here on the wall. Little red houses on it. Each house represents a community group. Little gospel outposts in our city, right? There's a lot of white space on that map. Each little block of, of white space represents houses and businesses, people in our city where God has placed us. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but where you live and where you work, God has placed you there on purpose. There's a little outpost of the gospel. I have a map. I have, actually have two maps of the, kind of the upper Midwest sitting above my desk on the wall that I just printed off on the printer because printers do that, right? Of the upper Midwest. There's two of them. One kind of shows where some other NAB churches are, the, the denominational affiliation we have. Where are they doing work in North Dakota and parts of South Dakota and Manitoba? The other map is Acts 29 churches in the upper Midwest. Where are the places we're partnered with and all the spaces in between representing people who live in those places. So what does it look like for us as we gather together in community groups, as we multiply churches in our area, in our region? What might God be doing in and through us? Do we believe that Jesus is building his church? And if so, how does he want to do that through us? Where we live, where we buy houses, the neighbors we have, the jobs we take, not just because the pay is better, but because there's kingdom implications for this. As my friend, Pastor Steve Treichler says, so that we can go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint. Right? See, God is calling us, friends, to clarity and boldness to proclaim this message. That all who enter the kingdom through Jesus are welcomed into the kingdom forever. So let us be the kind of people that proclaim that and live in light of that so that even more might enter into the kingdom through the narrow and wide-open arms of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you are always at work to accomplish your purposes. It is sobering to consider the, the weight, the reality of the narrowness of the door to the kingdom and yet the expanse of the welcome in Jesus. Father, for any of us this morning who are wondering if we're still on the outside looking in, would we respond by faith to Jesus even today?
to enter into the kingdom through him. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, whose hearts might be a little calloused and crusty, who might be a little cynical about the condition of the places you've placed us, who might shy away a bit from the the exclusivity of Jesus that you tell us in your word by your own mouth, would you renew our vision of the kingdom that we might have fresh clarity and boldness? That as we come to the table, even this morning, and taste of the bread and the cup, that we'd be reminded in just these simple elements, the the foreshadowing of a much greater feast. That it's because of Jesus' death, his body and blood broken and shed for us, that we now have access to a feast, a banquet of all of your supply. Would you encourage us as we come to the table that we might be renewed and refreshed in this simple reminder, this simple meal, in what it means for us now and what it points to in the life to come. Build up your church this morning as we continue in worship, we pray. Amen.